Hey everyone, and welcome to Behind the Box. I'm your host, Sherry, and we'll be interviewing passionate people who are on top of their game, discussing all things workplace culture and diving a little deeper into thought-provoking topics we think you'll love. We truly hope it makes a positive difference to your life, business, or workplace. Thanks for listening. Hey everyone, this episode is with Claudia Grinzi. So Claudia was my manager for a number of years and she is a good friend of mine still and I'd say she's also my go-to dancing partner. I think you'll absolutely love this episode because Claudia comes with so much experience and wisdom having worked in different areas within marketing and also digital. She's now the head of digital at AIA and she shares really openly about her journey, some of her challenges and how she's overcome them. Plus you'll hear more about some of her proudest moments, who her heroes are and more. I hope you love it. Let us know what you think. Oh, well, firstly, it's nice to be talking with you. It's not, it's, you know, we do this on such a regular basis over the years. It's, it's, it's interesting that it's now actually almost like a formalized thing. A formalized conversation yeah, for everyone to hear. I know, I know, but I'm very happy to be here with you. Thank you. Um, gosh, um, so who am I? So I, from a business perspective, I'm the head of digital and vitality operations at AIA and that's a health and life insurance business. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also a single mom of two beautiful girls that are nine and 12. Um, I'm the eldest of three children. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm first generation Australian. So mum and dad um, are from Italy and Yugoslavia. So my mum came as a migrant and my dad as a refugee. So, oh, wow. I didn't even know that. Yeah. Ooh. So that I think that brings into it you know really um beautiful and interesting childhood that I've had um tell us about your childhood oh my childhood (laughs) let's go back to your childhood I if I reflect on I think I've had a really blessed childhood you know Mm. like grew up in you know middle class Australia um you know my my parents did whatever they could to give us opportunities you know whether I was into ballet or jazz or gymnastics or tennis always had the opportunity to try different things um you know if ever ever there were times where you know like we were on a bit of a budget or things were tight food would be the last thing that would you know the the quality and the 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 variety of the food like growing up in an italian household yeah, delicious that never never changes like it's really i think it's really interesting to reflect though because i think like the meal time is probably one of the most important parts of a, of a, of a ritual in a, in a house or in a family and we always you know had breakfasts and um, on the weekend lunches and dinners and everything always together and just always the conversation and the the social and the sharing aspects so having mm-hmm. good quality food um is something that i always think about and even now when i go and visit my parents there's yeah. always, you know it's, we always huddle <laughs> around the kitchen bench yeah you know it's always around the table it's always around the pizza oven or the barbecue mm-hmm. so what's one of your favorite meals from your childhood 
Oh, my favorite meal from childhood is still my favorite meal as an adult, which what, is what which is, is my mum's homemade gnocchi. Oh yeah, oh, I can't go past it with you know all the the sugo, which is like the Italian pasta sauce with all of that. It's have you learned to make it as well? Uh, I've witnessed it about four thousand times, and I've yeah. tried to do it, not to very much success. So yeah, it's still I, in progress. It's still in progress, yeah, yeah. but I'm I'm. I'm I'm very big on giving my mum a lot of praise for it, so yeah. she continues her good work. <laughs> Continue cooking for us when we visit you. That's it. Um, so yeah, I really you know I really enjoyed primary school and high school. Um, my family actually, my dad had uh, a work contract in Thailand when I was 19. So actually, he took my brother, sister, and I and mum to Bangkok, and we lived in Bangkok for a year when I was 19, which was. Such a fascinating experience. Like, what was that like? Well, I, I experienced... Is that the first time you went overseas? Yeah, uh, yeah, it was. And mm. it was the first time I also experienced homesickness oh. and that very visceral feeling in, in your body. Um, and also at 19, yeah. you know, I think that I've got like 5,000 friends and I'm yeah. going out and like to be taken away from that. Um, yeah, definitely impacted on me, but... When I think about the really good thing that happened out of that that um, time overseas was my brother, who's two years younger than I, mm-hmm. we absolutely connected because we didn't know anybody else. So we yeah. actually became really good friends from that point in time, which I'm oh, so thankful yeah. for. Um, and I also got to do a lot of volunteer work while I was there. You know, I, I helped out with the um, a local uni and a, and a childcare group, and I actually auditioned for an American theatre company and got the main role there. So I didn't know that. What was the role? The, like, the, play, the, the play is called The Foreigner and okay. I play like a southern a southern woman who finds out that she's pregnant, which is totally bizarre. So at 19, <laughs> I had no comprehension of what that actually meant. Yeah. Um, but I've always loved drama and performance. So yeah. it was really lovely to just sort of dive into that world and be surrounded by people who were professionals and me just a, you know like yeah. a high school amateur but you always have had that in you actually I've always seen that side of you yeah that perform like loving to perform and just presenting and spreading that energy and that vibe to others yeah, yeah I've definitely seen that it's and, and that yeah. feels true like I've had the opportunity to present in front of a you know audience of like 1500 people through work and other really big groups of people I I actually get quite nervous beforehand um and i can feel those body sensations like the the heat and the sweat the heartbeat the heartbeat but i've done it a few times now to know that i'm going to be okay i'm not going to die you know so once i'm on the stage or in front of and i start talking then Mm. i feel quite comfortable up there so maybe all Mm. those early years of you know connect training (laughs) exactly maybe it helped so training up in thailand yeah who knows um okay so and you said you were the head of digital at aia yes what does that mean for someone who would have no clue yeah so um it's looking at the, the customer experience, the, the digital customer experience. How do we also digitize a business that's been very paper focused as well? How do we start to transform that, you know, really to meet people's expectations because they're mm-hmm. so shaped by their experiences with, you know, ordering a, you know, a car, an Uber or booking accommodation or, 
you know, having that real time and personalized experience with other parts of their life, you know, people expect that with all their other services that they consume. So, yeah, so, so my role there is to really harness people's energy and, and to deliver to the strategy and ultimately the, the purpose and vision of the organization. And yeah. um, so very much about what we do in, in the digital space is, is, is looking at it from a human-centered design approach. And that's yeah. something that we've, started, we've established and really embedding right across the organization. So really, mm. you know, people are not thinking product first, they're thinking customer first, they're yeah. thinking the user first and what their needs and motivations are. People so first, yeah. People first. And so I met you when you <laughs> took me into your team in digital. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the best times. And you, before you went into digital, you were in marketing. Yes. So how did you go from being in marketing, looking mm. at doing like more TVCs, catalog, yeah. outdoor, to deciding you wanted to go into a space that's way more um, technology focused? It probably does require marketing skills as well, but it's a totally different world. So how did you decide that that's what you wanted to do? That's what you wanted to pursue and now that you've been doing it for a while now yeah um good question and i it actually it happened over a period of time so having worked in marketing and advertising for like 12 13 years and various types of of, of marketing roles as well as public relations roles before i actually joined telstra as well um just starting to see the trends, starting to even looking at, you know, we were getting media plans from our media agencies yeah. and starting to see the proportion of where the money was being spent to reach people. And mm. you know, the digital spend was growing, growing and the and the and the and the print was shrinking and shrinking. So I could see I could start to see the writing on the wall. And I thought, well, how do I keep relevant? And I could really, and I'm starting to hear this buzz around, you know, Telstra Digital and what they were doing there. And it seemed really exciting. So I was like, right, how do I keep relevant? How do I, um, you know, grow my career to the next stage? Because I was also, I had had two children. Um, I had taken a year off for both girls um, and they were starting to get a little bit older. It was like, it was time for me to actually put my foot down on the accelerator of my career and go right what's the next big step for me so um I you know put my feelers out there and then I heard about a secondment opportunity mm -hmm. and um met a few people and got the gig and and then what with, was the secondment opportunity so working in uh the digital services team in the in prepaid um and then within six weeks they said we'd love to offer you a permanent job here and I was like absolutely because I really I really connected with with the people and the management and you know the direction that we were going in so it was a very easy like choiceless yeah moment um, and what do you think it was about you that got you the role given that you didn't have digital experience and you were going into it like you're going into a team lead role so you were looking after people as mm. well and helping them develop and grow in their roles so if someone were to do the same thing, what advice would you give them? It's an interesting thing. I think it's this, this part of it is is attitude and mindset, like having a very open mindset about learning something new and um, not stepping into a space 
thinking you know all the answers. It's really interesting when you see people also, like when you change organisations and you've worked somewhere that's been successful and then you go into a new role and you just expect everything to, to change for you like that and that, you know, you're the, you're the evangelist. You're the go-to and people think that you know everything because yeah. you're in that role now. That's right. Yeah. And it's not. So I think it's having, you know, a, a learning attitude as well. Um, having an attitude of, of sharing what you know too, I think that's really important. Um, like not hoarding information, I, I, I see that. From your other role or from as, you, as you're learning as well? Yeah, both. as you're learning and as a leader as well, I think mm. that's really important to show, you know, that you're sharing what you know and not being almost territorial with your IP um, because you're only as successful as as your team are successful too. So I want to be there to help them grow. So for me, I think what's why they saw, um, why they saw something in me was that I actually also took the time to get to know the people around me and what really matters to them. What do, what do they care about? What motivates them? Um, And I think, ultimately it was because I had been at Telstra for you know over a decade it was the the relationships and the network and the connections that I had across many different business units that I actually became quite valuable in that sense that I could build bridges or create bridges or repair bridges Um, so really so the Telstra digital agenda could accelerate so those relationships were super important to make sure that we could move really fast and, and get things done mm, that's a really good point because i remember that when you joined it was at the time where we were basically known as being cowboys in digital and mm-hmm. one of the biggest things for us was actually to start establishing better relationships with all the people that we were working with because we had done what we needed to alone yeah and it was time to yeah grow back in with the business so that's right and there's a time and place for that there's a time and place to just trailblaze and pioneer and push your way through you know that's part of innovation and entrepreneurship but then there's a time as the business is growing and uh the teams you know there's there's more people and you actually have to in some way start to institutionalize certain things you can't just run like you do when you're always in a small organization so I was also able to bring in some of that a bit of process too Mm. to to that space so yeah and so you talked a little bit about how you were uh, really interested in performance and drama and all those things when you were younger Mm. and you see how that's kind of come with you still to this day Mm -hmm. how did you discover that for instance you wanted to study marketing that you wanted to get into PR um what kind of drew you to those things when you were younger and kind of discovering who you were and where you wanted to go? I think, gosh, if I think about it as a, as a kid, I was always um, setting up little businesses at home. I was always, for example, you know, setting Tell up... Oh, <laughs> no, but just, you yeah. know, but just like even like using your imagination and, and role playing, like setting up a little shop or a little garage sale or a little cooking school. And I might be talking to just like an imaginary audience, but I was always... <laughs> I, was, I can see you doing that. Yeah. <laughs> even jumping on the trampoline and explaining to people, this is how you do this, to my imaginary audience. And I see that in my, in my daughters now yeah. as well. But I always... 
like this idea of like of, of sharing and, and connecting and, and creating something yeah. um, to make a bit of a difference. So, um, so as I went through high school, I think I always did quite well with some of those softer subjects, you know, I guess the, um, the humanities and such. But in terms of making a decision about going to uni, well, that was 1991 was when I was in year 12. And that was when there was a real uh, resurgence around Japan. Mm. And so it was like, wow, Japan's going to be the next superpower. Um, So I ended up choosing to do a double degree, Bachelor of Business and Bachelor of Arts. and, And the business was majoring in marketing economics because um, I also did well in those subjects, but also the arts about learning about Japan and culture, the language and history. culture and history and everything. So I was trying to to choose something which I think would improve my chances of also getting a job and again being relevant to what was happening at a macro level in the world. So a very wise for that age, mm. I must say. Mm. Did you end up using any part of the arts, well, <laughs> the the culture, the Japanese culture, history, language? I think Do you it, feel like that's yeah. influenced you in any way. I've never actually made it to Japan, but it's on my bucket list of things to do is yeah. to, is to go to Japan. It. Oh, yeah. I, oh, yeah. Every story I've heard, I think I would. Um, the Japanese thing, I think besides that, you know, like I still remember a smattering of the, of, of, the, of the language and I think I really like that this, you know, Japan is this incredible dichotomy between this very, you know, traditional, historical, sacred, hierarchical um, traditions and then this completely extreme, also underground, crazy out there. So how this culture balances these two extremes, I find so fascinating. Mm. So in that respect, you know, that's what I've taken from that. Um, the business marketing side, <laughs> to be completely <laughs> frank and honest, I sometimes struggle to remember what I actually learned at uni. Yeah, I think we <laughs> it all was... struggle with that. <laughs> I, I think I'm very much a on-the-job kind of learning. And that was, the, yeah. I went to Swinburne and part of what attracted me to going to Swinburne was the fact that they have a co-op year where you can go out in the workforce and learn at the same time. And um, and I did, and from that is where my, my working, my paid working career actually developed. So started in marketing consultancy, then went to a PR agency and then um, a, a cosmetic company where I did um, PR work mm. there, very short-lived, um, and then to Telstra's, mm. which I had multiple careers there. What has been your favourite thing in terms of your career? My favourite, like, favourite role? Favourite, yeah, favourite role or even uh, accomplishment within a role? Oh, it's actually, I think there's, I kind of think oh, of I know there'd be a lot, actually. Yeah, there's, I think, look, there's a... One that's mem- very memorable. Well... There's, there's one thing I think it's like when I worked at Telstra Digital, it's because I lead in a different way. And I say different, you know, I don't lead in an, an orthodox or authoritarian type of way. I, I think of myself as more of a empathetic, compassionate leader. And so I was a little bit unsure of how that way of leading would go down. Um, but I actually got recognised for that, and um, and got some amazing feedback, and actually got an, an award for it. And that was 
not that I needed an award, but just the validation that me leading in the way that feels most natural and comfortable and authentic to me was just such incredible um, feeling to go just keep doing what you're doing. Don't try to conform in a particular way because people are responding well to m my style of leadership. So yeah. just that validation of being, it's okay to just be completely yourself at work. That's it, it just makes such a big difference. And Claudia's been very modest because I sent her to South by Southwest overseas to America, uh, which is pretty and like a pretty incredible recognition mm. by the company. Um, and I remember that you did a speech before you went there because I think you were introducing some startups. Oh, at the digital summit. Yeah, yeah. the digital summit. And you said that uh, one quote that resonated with you was to be the change you want to see in the world. And yeah. you were talking about how growing up, like you always thought maybe that means I need to be part of a, you know, not-for-profit or, I, you know, I need to work for a charity or, you know, spend a lot of time volunteering. But at the end of the day, you can do that in any role. You can do it in your life today. You don't need to go out and... Um, you know, it, it, of course, it's amazing to do those things, but it's not necessarily about that. It's about how you're going to make an impact to the people around you now. And just, yeah, and, and that shows in your leadership style for sure because you just create really positive energy. Everyone feels like they can be themselves. And, um, yeah, I've definitely seen that in you for sure. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for reminding yeah. me of, of that, that speech, I guess. And that was a huge pivot in my life. Like that was, it, gosh, it takes so much energy to try to be something that you're not. Like I just, I, I don't have the time to do that. You know, I'm a single working mom, works full time. I, I, I can't pretend to be anything that I'm not. And I actually, and I've just, I think, been building on that insight over the years. And I really... When I think about it, it's my my vulnerability, my my ability to to open and share and give permission for others to do the same. That's what connects me with people, and and I think it what helps me bring out the best in other people around me, whether they work in my team or working with me on my team. It doesn't matter, but it's um mm. yeah. Do you think that you have always been? like that at work in terms of this is who I am and this is how I will lead this is how I will work with others or was there ever a time where you struggled where you thought you needed to be someone else when you stepped into work I actually think that happens it still happens on a regular basis and I you know we you, you read and you talk about imposter syndrome and and it's something that I that I also I don't want to say suffer from but it definitely it, it, it creeps in there and it's something that I'm working on all the time and you know there are little techniques and things that I do when some of those little little thoughts creep in you know thinking oh gosh you know always comparing myself to somebody else in the room who I think is smarter or more articulate it's like wait a minute Claudia remember just be who you are because some people will connect to that type of person and personality and and some people will connect to the way that I lead so just Stick with what you know and what you're good at and what you enjoy. So, yeah, but it's an ongoing, it's ongoing an ongoing journey. process. Yeah. Absolutely. So what are some of the techniques then that you would use? Because everyone, I think, has self-doubt. And I think those mm. thoughts are so true. They always creep in, especially, I think, in a corporate environment. Because I feel like 
being out alone, I have less of that comparison. Mm. Whereas I remember being in an office and stepping into a meeting room where there's all these senior people around me that the thoughts that go in your head are like, oh my God, they're so smart. They know more than me. Whereas really like you're, you're in that room because you're adding value. So what do you do to, um, what techniques do you use to sort of close off those thoughts that are running around in your head? There's actually kind of a, a network of techniques. So, um, so from a, um, I, I see like an intuitive coach. I have uh, like a. What does a, an intuitive oh, coach do? Oh, okay. What, is, what does oh, that okay. mean? Well, it might be more like a sort of a spiritual <laughs> coach, but there's someone that I see that like start to work through some of those deeper feelings and belief systems to try to change behaviors around that. Um, so things that might be stopping you from doing what you really want to do. Absolutely. Yeah. So whether it's sort of affirmations or other types of techniques there, yeah. um, I, I meditate every, every day as well. Cause I find that very cleansing and sort of opens me up to more, you know, light and goodness and positivity, um, and sheds a lot more of the toxicity and the stress. Um, I also, I try to remember that what other people think of me is none of my business. <laughs> and that's something that, yeah. you know, and I guess if it's people that, you know, that you think could influence your career or influence some of the outcomes that you're trying to make. So I think in those cases where um, I have a different way of being and someone is quite different, uh, I think a new technique that I've used, which is, I think the power of language. I think language is so important with um, helping people to understand who you are or you helping you understanding them is um, the idea of that it's not not everything is black and white you know just because you think differently from me doesn't mean that I'm wrong and you're right mm-hmm. or vice versa mm-hmm. so it's a, a little snippet of words that I've been using recently is I think differently about that It's not devalidating you. It's not saying that I'm right and you're wrong. But just opening up that space to go, well, there's another way of thinking about things. And I have found that really powerful. Like, so I've been using that a lot lot more and it really opens up a a dialogue. So it's not like, um, so there's a discussion rather than a a, a right and a wrong answer to everything. I love that one. That is such, that is such a small thing that you can include in all your meetings and conversations that you're having when you don't want to be, especially if you're not like one of those people who, um, like confrontation, Mm, absolutely. um, which I I don't think a lot of people do, but that is a really good way to like diffuse the situation and just focus on what what you want the outcome to be. Yes. Absolutely. That's awesome. So we've talked a lot about some of the amazing things that you've achieved and we've talked a little bit about how you handle self-doubt as well. What would you say is more of a weakness for you mm. that um, that you can talk about to help other people if they're going through the same things? Yeah. I, I think for me it's um, – I, I, I'm working on and I continue to work on my ability to make tough decisions faster. You know, I, I like to think things through. I like to be able to understand all sides of a situation, mm-hmm. try to gather as much information as possible. But sometimes I can get bogged down in that process of, you know, trying to get to what is the best answer here. And sometimes sometimes, 
the procrastination um, in doing that can actually create um, a toxic environment because certain situations might be prolonged because I'm not making a tough decision sooner. So I think about it in terms of like performance management and I've had to do a bit of performance management in my, in my career and the first time is always such the hardest time but I've gotten better at better at, at recognizing signs and dealing with the situation much sooner than I would have in the past. So I think that's something that I continue to work on and, um, and, and not being afraid of, not having all the information. It's being comfortable with ambiguity and going, right, this is, I need to make a, a decision now. I'm going to make a call. And if I have to pivot after that, then, then so be it's it. It's okay to change your mind. It's okay to change your mind and take responsibility for, well, this is what I knew at that time. I, I, I could have made a different decision. So taking ownership for that. So, yeah, so that's something that I think that I continue to, to learn and I can do better on. Um, when do you know if it's a decision is taking too long to be made or <laughs> if you do actually need that amount of time? Oh, it, is, it, that, is that is that even could you can you even be able to identify that oh that, absolutely I know because it's like the it's like the mosquito in the room it's that little buzzing sound that it keeps weighing on my mind it might wake me up in the middle of the night yeah. and I know that it's it's lingering and I'm procrastinating and I just need to do something about it yeah and it's time to just yeah, do it that's yeah. right and what information do you normally rely on to make that call if you don't have everything what's the what are the kind of the key things that you look for in in making a decision I think there's 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 two things I think there's my intuition I think you know I've had so many experiences in my life where I've gone oh, I should have trusted my my gut feeling about that so just really creating space to really listen to, to that voice inside of me and meditation definitely helps with that. The other thing would be that, you know, having people, whether it's at work or um, support outside of work, people that I trust that I can talk to, get their opinion on just to help me if, if there's a perspective that I haven't thought about. Yeah. So it's kind of internal and it's external as well. But I think the combination usually gets me to a point where I can make a make decision. A, make a decision, yeah. yeah. And so moving into leadership now, mm -hmm. uh, I definitely love your style of leadership. I think that that's what really suits me as well, going into different teams. What do you think is the type of leadership we're going to need in, let's say, the next decade yeah. or decades to come? What do you think is really important for leaders to, to know, to be... Um, yeah what areas do you think that they need to be more focused on in terms of their own self-development as well yeah I actually think there's there's two things um the first is the ability to make sense of the situation and and I say that because the world and our um the business world and the whole world that we live in it's just getting more complex it's just and it's not slowing down and the complexity is growing and and growing and the pace that we're working with you know it's not changing it's not slowing down so I think what makes a good leader is somebody that can make sense of complex environments complex concepts complex decisions and simplify it and then be able to share that to the people around them in a way that's relevant for their role 
So if you can do, if you can make sense of things for other people, yeah. I, and, and that's not a tangible thing. Like it's not something on our resumes that you go, I am a sense maker. Like yeah. it seems so strange, but it's actually, I think a really highly valuable skill these days because there is so much change as well. So somebody who can make sense of things as they're complex and changing and simplify them and make them relevant. I think that's what we need from, from leaders today. And in that type of environment, people feel fragile. They feel mm. afraid. Like there's, there's change coming that's ambiguous. They don't know what's going to happen to them. So I think the other, the second quality is around vulnerability. And, and I am a big Dr. Brene Brown fan. And I, and I was fortunate enough to, to see her at South by Southwest in, in Austin all those years ago. And I, I, I love her books and her podcasts. But my lived experience has shown that being vulnerable, um, it helps build empathy and relatability with other people. And, and, and I find that people are more likely to trust you and believe you and think that you're a credible reliable person when you do share some of those um, feelings or emotions that you know when the world is changing so much um, that you can go I understand that or and share that you know your own fears and, and insecurities mm -hmm. it, it gives permission for other people and they because it's about creating that you know psychologically safe environment for people so I think those are the two, vulnerability and, and, and being a sense maker, I think are two of the really key qualities that leaders need to show these days. Yeah, I yeah, I completely agree. The sense maker one, I haven't heard anyone bring up before, but as soon as you said it, I, I just imagined all the situations I've been in where someone has communicated really clearly what the situation is what it means for us as a team mm -hmm. and then us as an, like me as an individual and then an action on me of yep. what I actually need to do about this. So I really like that one. That's a really good one. Mm. It's a good one. And so also those two things together are going to create a really good workplace culture as well. Right. And I know you're a big advocate of creating thriving workplace cultures. So can you talk to me about your thoughts on who creates workplace culture and why it's so important? Mm. Well, I think culture is about, um, this sense of belonging, this sense of sharing in something that we all believe in, something that we all value. So for me, culture, it's top down, bottom up. Like it, it, it's everybody's responsible for, for culture. Everyone's um, responsible for finding ways so that you enjoy when you go to work. You know, like I know those days where, um, you know, I... I don't have back-to-back -back meetings all days, yeah. which is sometimes... That's surprising. The, well, oh my gosh. I like that every day. Yeah. I, and I, I do try to like manage my diary in a way so I can avoid that because I know on the days where I, I finish work and I know my level of satisfaction is really high, you know, I'm a happier employee. And then the next day, you, I think you just do really good work when you're in an environment where, um, you know, you can share ideas you can, you know, if you've got to lament over something that's been bothering you, you've got people at work that you can you can share that with. So I think it's a, um, I think it's everybody's responsibility. Um, but it's especially I think for for leaders in the organisation, you can't just expect it to happen. Like you actually have to be proactive, and you have to 
Um, you have to demonstrate um, the importance of of in, in engagement and and you know there are small things that you can do to to help that that grow in an organization mm. so what are the small things oh, that look, you think oh, you can do they're so to me they just seem so simple mm. like saying hello in the morning saying good morning to people as you walk past them saying good night to people like i like to walk the floor because my team is quite spread over several floors so just saying hello you know not just it does make such a big difference oh. doesn't it to the tone of the day like if you walk up to your manager and they're just like intense looking at the computer already going nuts on the keyboard it's just like that vibe it gives off this negative energy doesn't it but you're not approachable as well so I also try to hot desk around the organization too so and that feels you know I'm also more accessible more approachable and and showing that you know I'm I'm interested and I am I'm interested in what my team are are working on and I can Mm. be there and available to them to to help them with any questions or anything Mm. so have you ever been in a situation where you've gone into a team where the workplace culture isn't so great um, and it might be even a little bit more on the toxic side. Mm. What mm. have you done or what have you seen that's worked to oh. get people out of that? Wow. It's interesting you say that because in this in the situation that popped into my mind, um, and it wasn't while I was working at Telstra or at AIA, it was prior to that. Yeah. The culture, it was very, it was a very small team. It was working out of uh, the the, the the owner's business owner's house and and she was extremely her style of working was extremely controlling so you you had to you know adhere word for word to every single thing um that she said and if you deviated in any way showed any kind of initiative um, you would absolutely be reprimanded in front of everybody. Oh my gosh, so that's scary. It, it was, and it actually had a, a physical effect on my well-being. That um, you know, in a in a in one, so I think review session, I kind of mentioned that you know to get the best out of me, this is probably a better way of working, and just having the door shut. So that in that particular case because this particular manager was just um, completely blocked to any um, difference of opinion to her, I ended up leaving that business. And that was a, that was a hard decision. It felt like I was quitting, but I was actually doing something positive for my mental well-being as well as my physical well-being. And sometimes there's some people who just, you, who, who just don't want to change. And sometimes you're the one who has to change, not them. So you're going to yeah. have to move. So. Yeah. And it sounded like, look, you made the initiative to try to change things. And if people aren't open in that, then maybe that's not the right place. No, that's right. Be. That's right. And yeah. so I think that's when you're, whether you're interviewing for a role or interviewing somebody else for a role, you've got to be able to be clear and aware enough of what are the signs potentially that's that you may not work well with with somebody oh my gosh, let's talk about this right so what are the signs what do you oh i think it's because yeah, you've hired a lot of people yeah in I, your day i i have and i've i haven't always got it right because i think the interview process in itself is i think it's quite flawed in that it's in a very formal can be in a very formal environment sometimes so i think it's a very um, false environment so I don't think you're always seeing the best 
out of people and people are often nervous in that in that environment so mm-hmm. um so what i've found is i like to get people into a more relaxed environment so whether we we almost do an informal interview over a coffee at a nearby cafe you can just see people's shoulders relax and that's what's important to me i want to see the real the real person and i'm not just going to ask people questions about you know their direct capabilities and qualifications i want to i want to hear a bit more about them outside of a work context because um, it's the idea of hearing about somebody's potential and and hearing people talk about other things that they love and do you get a real sense of who they are so i, I think um but a one person a one round interview is also not going to be enough for you to know whether there's a culture fit because there's obviously you need to deal with that whole unconscious bias people that you hire people just like yourself yeah. you go, oh i love them yeah. i got them so well <laughs> they're exactly you, like me let's hire them that's right and that and that yeah. doesn't quite you know connect with this idea of diversity and, and hiring people of different experiences that bring different perspectives so i do like to have either um a, a team member, someone they'll be working with in the team or someone from another function that they'll be working with on a regular basis to, to have a coffee and a, and a chat with them as well. I think that's really important. So you have some different perspectives. So, um, yeah, you're not biased and, and that you know you're hiring, yes, for, for merit, but also for potential and also for, for culture fit as well. Mm, yeah, agree. What are your thoughts on... Um, hire, instead of hiring full-time and then having this six-month probation period Mm. what are your thoughts on like mixing up a little bit and offering someone say one month Mm. and if it all goes well we'll add another another couple months or Mm, what do you what do you think of that style and the reason I bring it up is because someone else that I spoke to for the podcast Andre so he Mm. is he um started up Vino Mofo Mm -hmm. and now he's started another um kind of like a branding agency Um, working with businesses that are doing good for the world. And the way that he's switched his mindset about hiring is to do this now because what happens, he finds, is when you hire someone, it's really hard to then get rid of that person once they've been there for the Mm. five or six months. Mm. And most people, not everyone, won't actually kind of cut the cord. They'll just let the person sort of continue and then it ends up being bad for both parties. Yes. So what are your thoughts on hiring in that way? And do you think that corporate will ever kind of adopt that style? Well, it depends on... uh, There's something about that that I really like. So I hire for for permanent roles as well as for... um, fixed term roles so say for a three or six month project and sometimes we even have to do like a daily contractor as well so but if we're talking about it in terms of uh like a a fixed term contract or a permanent i think one month might be a bit too premature i sort of i i find it that when i whenever i've started a new role it's usually around that six to eight week mark that you really start to find your groove a little bit more. Mm. You really start to get a sense of, oh, I'm getting the hang of it. Um, I don't know, four weeks for me feels like a little bit premature. So maybe mm. just a little longer than that. And I think it's not just whether you think the person is right for the role. It gives them enough time to go whether you know, they're, they're in the right, right role yeah. as well. So I actually think there's some merit in, in that. Um, and it's just about having the right length of time for it mm-hmm. but yeah you're right six months there becomes a bit more of an emotional uh attachment and mm-hmm. connection as well 
and um, with that person and if they don't have the right capabilities. But there shouldn't be any surprise to anybody. If you're having consistent one-to-one meetings um, and you're timely with your feedback and you're seeking not just your own um, feedback and observations but seeking feedback from people that they're working with and you're relaying it back to the person um, there should be no surprises at the six month mark and I think that's where um, someone would know by then whether they're on the right track or not Mm. so what do you have a framework that you use for giving constructive feedback yep so and it's and it's different for every person yeah because i think the way that you receive feedback is oh, different true. Yeah. you know it's like that uh, it's that great marcus buckingham book um you know know the rules and break them anyway yeah, yeah. it's like i don't treat anybody the same i think the values are consistent mm. but the way i treat you would be someone the different way, to someone somebody else. else on the team because that what makes sense. motivates yeah. you like for example, you know, I'll have team members where, you know, just a, a quiet thank you on the side, that is, you know, that that's that that's good for them. Others, you know, would prefer to have, you know, more of a public recognition mm-hmm. or receive uh, we have the red the red recognition program, so I might award points for people. So um, so that's about recognition. In terms of I guess feedback, um, if I'm ever giving constructive feedback, um, I don't do it um, certainly in, a, in an audience um, because that person could feel uncomfortable like having that feedback in a, in a wider group. So I would prefer to do it one-to-one. Um, I would always, you know, and people talk about, you know, the shit sandwich, you know, say something nice, say something, you know, critical and then mm-hmm. say something nice what do you think of the shit sandwich oh look look i'm look i'm i am fundamentally a very positive and optimistic person so i'm always very generous with my assumptions of people um so i i I can always find i always look for the good in everybody so i think the i think it's this learning this difference between you know constructing constructively giving feedback critiquing you know there's a there's a there's a there's a skill set in that and it takes time to nurture it yeah so i think what's really important with giving constructive feedback and this doesn't change for anybody you need to it has to be fact-based you know i think it has to be you need to give an example of something that either you have directly seen or you know if it is from uh feedback that you've got from somebody else use that example as opposed to saying oh someone told me that they didn't like the way use the you know paint like for example someone told me that you didn't present very well the other day so rather than saying hey when you were in this meeting um i think you could have done better because these are the things that happened during this meeting that's right yeah that's right so being super specific as well with the examples Uh, yeah and i like the way you said that too and that makes me think about rather than going uh i don't like the way that you said that rather saying something like next time when you're in a situation think about if you could phrase it in this particular way or you know rather than chastising someone for for that one you could phrase it as next time this comes up Mm. what i would expect is that you handle it in you know in this Mm. way so much for sharing that those frameworks i think it's so important to be able to articulate it in the way that you have because Sometimes it can be really hard and confronting to talk to people about things that haven't gone to plan. 
So yeah. I think thinking about it with, you know, what are the what are the things they can do differently and using specifics instead of being really vague. And sometimes I think as well, we, that shit sandwich that you were talking about, sometimes that's confusing to people because you're telling them they're doing, like it, you, the message then gets confused with what they did well too. Yep. So I think that's a really good way. And I was just thinking about all the things that you've talked about. You've talked about how small things like showing that you care, saying hello to people, moving around, meeting different people in the workplace, all these little things that you have done and that you've seen work really well from a culture perspective. How would you not convince someone, but people who might not think it's as important Mm to focus on employee engagement and maybe they are prioritizing other things like uh, the financial side of the business more than they are employee engagement. And sometimes that does happen. Yeah. How do you um, put it back into perspective for management? Yeah. It's that, it's that equation around quality time and cost, I think sometimes as well. And you're right. Sometimes, you know, there's a, a looming deadline or something's got to be done for a certain price point or whatever. Or for a certain exec. <laughs> or for a certain exec, that's right. Yeah. But those things are all possible, but it's how you actually get there. So, and I think I think most, most people who, who work in a corporate environment know that that's going to happen. So I think people are, are comfortable with going over and above um, if they know at the end of it, they're going to be valued and thanked for the effort that they've put in. Um, and also knowing that they're contributing to something that's a bigger purpose. Um, so that whole purpose led leadership is so important. That's probably the third element of what's important today for leadership is, is knowing, um, is, is connecting to the purpose of why you're actually doing something. I think that's really critical that organizations spend enough time. And that probably comes down to um, if you want the best out of your people, if you want to have the best product or service for your customers, then you want to have employees that are also feel like they've got the materials and tools that they can do the best job that they can, that they feel like, you know that their voice is heard. Um, that you know sometimes things are hard, and and they don't always expect leaders to, to change things for them straight away. But knowing that they've been their voice has been heard, their opinion has been heard, and it counts and it matters. I think you know people are, are quite flexible and quite adaptable and resilient. Um, but you need to you need to nurture that. So I think for for management who think it's just like drive people, you know. To, to a goal with no support or empathy around that, um, people will leave. People will just, they'll leave, you know, there's a natural attrition process, but people will leave before that happens. And people will speak um, in terms of like when they fill out their, you know, their annual uh, Gallup engagement survey or the, the more quarterly pulse surveys, um, that will come through. So, um, and, and the customer ultimately is going to respond because the, the quality of the product and service that they're being offered, the employee who's delivering that is not giving their best. So it's this incredibly cyclical thing. So it's really important that you know that you know that your staff are engaged and find out what engages them because it's not the same for everybody too. Some people 
want to have you know more social outings and, and connection that's how they feel engaged others people um, it's by you know what they get paid others it's knowing that they're appreciated when they come to work others it's going they're they're making a difference to the community and, and the wider world so you really need to as a, as a as a manager if you really want to get the best for your customers best for your commercial outcomes you really need to understand your people and what drives their their engagement mm, i completely agree and i love the focus on the individual because you're right it's not gonna one solution isn't gonna work for everyone no. so it's just about having that that care factor in everything that you're that you're doing it's not about setting time aside to find out what people are going to be engaged about it's all it's kind of always having your finger on that pulse continuously so that people can feel that you care as well rather than let's just spend a day working on people and then forget about the people absolutely constantly mm. work in progress and mm. and i think what's what it challenges a lot of um, leaders is making the time on a regular basis to to do that because we're we're all so you know there's so much to deliver and so many administrative tasks and everything to do but it's really valuing you know that time that you carve out in your day or your week knowing that the the um, the reciprocal side of that is so much greater like a little bit of effort can get a lot of reward from it yeah yeah i love that so much <laughs> it's so good so the last question is hmm. about heroes oh okay so when we talk about heroes it could be people that are famous that don't know you but you know them mm -hmm. or it could be people in your everyday life so can you talk to us about who your heroes are yeah, I think yeah, heroes is an interesting one because I think that I love to listen to podcasts. Yeah. So I feel like I've got heroes of people that I've never met, but just either read their books or, or heard their voice and listened mm. to what they've got to say. So there's you know the the land of podcasts has just opened up. You know, my hall of justice of heroes mm. is, is so much bigger. <laughs> Let's hear them all. So no, but I think it's um, so Brene Brown. Um, Gary Zukov, you know, he wrote the book Seed of the Soul, which has really changed my perception of why we're here and the, the meaning and the purpose of life and the types of experiences that we have, um, the intentions that we set. Um, Eckhart Tolle is another one and his amazing 10-part series that he did with Oprah as well. Um, recently, I've been really enjoying a lot of the um, interviews that Tim Ferriss does he he asks some incredible incredible questions and um, people like Julia Rice who started um, Soul Cycles um, in in New York. Um, who else would there be? Um, what are Soul Cycles? So they so she um, so Julie um, uh, grew up in Los Angeles where it's very much a lifestyle culture mm -hmm. um, and. Um, and in New York, this is going back in the early 2000s, it was very much go to the gym, work hard, competitive, get out. It was just a very kind of structured thing. And she, she discovered that, you know, it was before green smoothies and all like the, the yoga um, place. So she'd started up these um, incredible uh, places where people could like, it was like, cycle classes but with a whole different ethos around you go there and you're motivated with really positive affirmative it's a whole experience it's like you walk through the doors and it's like having a, a theater experience like the show 
is on until you walk out the door that every part of your experience there is uplifting and nourishing mm. and you can't wait to talk to people about it so yeah okay i need to look into yeah, this it's yeah fascinating so um and then just some you know some people that i would love to meet like adita von Tees has got an incredible story as well so i don't know that person Dita, so us. she's the one she's that very famous um burlesque dancer so she does that very famous dance in a martini class. Oh, okay, yeah. But just a fascinating story. And, um, yeah, I really like stories of people who have really struggled early in life and then created something because of the struggles that they've had. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, like my – I think about my mum and dad in that respect too. Is like, you know, my mum my and dad both came from sort of poor families and, um, you know, in my mum's side, you know, her father – you know, uprooted his whole family and moved them to a country that they couldn't speak the language, they didn't know anybody. Mm. And my dad, you know, they were escaping from a communist government in Yugoslavia. So, and coming here and, you know, those experiences that they've had have, have, have shaped who they are and their sense of the importance of family and unconditional love are the things that I've learned from my mum and dad, you know? Mm. So, yeah, so they're my heroes in that respect. And I'm always learning you know from them and loving them and going oh now i get it you know yeah. i think as a, as a parent yeah as a parent you, you yeah. have that um and i think heroes in the way that who inspires you but also who teaches you mm. and my kids man i <laughs> i i am constantly learning about patience yeah. and tolerance and and um and joy you know, through, through them. So I, I sometimes lose it and, you know, and I ask for forgiveness from them. So, you know, but I, they're my heroes because I'm learning from them. I'm learning how to be a better person because of, of them. So, yeah. There's some great examples. Some I need to Google as well to find out more about. Thanks, Claude. It was really good. Nice to hang out with you. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode of Behind the Bee Box. My journey with Brainy Box has inspired me to share what I've learned from others with you in the hope it makes a positive difference to your life, business or workplace. Your feedback and love is what keeps me going. So please follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn at Brainy Box or connect with me on LinkedIn at Sherry Amami. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, rate and review this podcast. Have a wonderful week and I'll speak to you soon.